Hello and welcome to the Groundry Share with myself, Ian Stewart, and today my special guest is Yaya Bari. Welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as with always, we are trying to learn a little bit about more about how faith impacts our lives, uh, living as, as someone from a different faith in, in, in the capital city of Edinburgh. Um, and as always, we start with upbringing, um, <laughs> quite a, a, a varied upbringing, um, in Gambia. Yep, started off in Gambia when I was born, yeah, 1983 to be precise. Um, so yeah, when I think about my upbringing, certain memories well, just come, come back. One of the earliest memories I have is owning my own BMX bike. <laughs> well, funnily enough, I always wanted a, a, a BMX and I remember the disappointment one Christmas when they got me a chopper. But yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you can't have it away, Ian. So how, uh, what, how, what age did you leave Gambia? So I left Gambia when I was 11. Right, so, um, so it's still so quite yeah. an important period in, in, in your life. And uh, were you brought up in a strong Muslim family? Well, my family wasn't super religious and super practicing. Okay. And now when I, when I think about it, I'm critical whenever people raise the kind of religious flag or the religious kind of label. Because what, what, what does that mean really? Okay. I mean, as a faith leader, yes. for example, I cannot appreciate when someone says, oh, he comes from a religious family. But then I look at my, my own, let's say my own children and it's like, we just do normal things that, 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 that families do, you know. Go. So we, we were at the disgusting um, food museum in Malmo. Um, we go to Edinburgh Zoo, you know. Those things, would they be considered necessary religious per se? You know, they're just normal things. So my family was a normal Gambian family. Um, I remember my dad, you know, working in a bank, then later moving to civil aviation. My mum was a teacher. So, yeah, um, one of the things that... I remember very well is being raised in an extended family with, with like cousins and aunts and uncles, you know, very much the proverbial, the African village that it takes the whole village to raise a child. Mm. That, that is very much part of um, what shapes me, um, you know, growing up or what shaped me growing up. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We'll be going in, into each other's houses, you know, with the neighbors, their children being invited to take food. And one of our neighbors was actually a Christian and um, during Christmas, they'll cook up a big feast, right? And we'll be eating and we'll not even be asking, is this pork or not? Like, we'll just eat because it was just normal for us to eat each other's foods. Um, religion was not necessarily divine and it, it remains so in Gambia. Ah. Yeah. So people would come together. I remember speaking to other friends in East Africa. Uh, they also had that kind of feeling of, of coming together and celebrating one another's festivals mm -hmm. waiting for the sunset to come down yeah and so there was a similar kind of feeling of communities together mm -hmm. definitely Africa. yeah um and and just for example we were in ghana just um late last year with the church of scotland um and you know the interface scotland our lead center and then maktoum college the sort of joint project looking at christian muslim relations in, in a place like ghana mm -hmm. and it just brought back memories of gambia because the relations are very organic you know, there's intermarriage sometimes, there's, um, you go to each other's ceremonies, someone passes away, you know, you go and give your condolences. So, you know, I guess in those countries where we're sort of blessed, whereas if you look at other countries within the region, you find there's, there's a lot more tension, yeah, which is sad. But 
I'm, I'm guessing that religion still played quite a key part in terms of, I'm guessing your father maybe take, did your father take you to mosque? Yeah, for, for prayers. I remember you know, my around diets and customs traditions. Yeah, so I guess the narrative that I want to make clear <laughs> from, from the very beginning is my father was not like the, a religious figure. Like let's say my father, I'm not the I'm not the son of an imam yes, or, or son yes. of a sheikh. Uh, I had a very normal sort of upbringing. I was okay. not supposed to be doing this sort of work. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of like yes, went against the. Yeah. The, what was expected of me, That's you know. Um, my dad was a was a banker, and then later on moved to civil aviation. Ah. And then he, he he got a scholarship to come and study civil aviation here in the UK. Right. And that's how I, that's how we you know that's how we okay. moved. And then you, you moved to to London, Leighton, Leighton man. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And what was that like uh, coming from Gambia? Gambia to London. Yeah, it was really. In, I mean. The images I had of like let's say living in like uh, some kind of you know, so, you know when when you're in the in the Gambia you have images of Britain as like a, a land of kingdom, you know you you know I was, uh, maybe I don't know expecting to be neighbours with the Queen you know where my house would be you know uh, at the backyard of Buckingham Palace something like that and then you know we're in a flat in East London and you know um, it was like oh okay this this is quite different to what I was expecting. Mm, mm. And having to go to school um, in Leighton, um, trying to settle in with an African accent. Um, How was that? A, it was okay because we live in a very multicultural part of London. And uh, now having grown up and then, you know, done some research on, you know, migration histories and stuff, I came to recognise that we live in what would have been termed a sort of, um, a sort of almost cultural enclave where... And this is common in, in certain cities where, you know, migrants tend to settle in certain areas um, and those areas become, you know, very multicultural. So Leighton was one of them. And it remains the same. Whenever I visit London, I go past to see some of my old friends. I, it's very much a sort of like Muslim sort of area. Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't really have too many difficult issues settling in. Although later in college, there was sort of identity crisis that, you know, um, I had to sort of resolve because the area was, let's say, um, when, when you look at the Muslim demographics uh, in the UK, um, you'll find, let's say, two thirds of the Muslim population would come from the Southeast Asian mm. sort of, um, you know, community. So me being an African Muslim growing up in Leighton, multicultural, um, sometimes it created a sort of like tension because I was not uh, Afro-Caribbean mm-hmm. and the Afro-Caribbean had their own vibrant culture mm-hmm. um, and the black Muslim culture was not really something distinct that I could fit into mm-hmm. and at the same time I wasn't a Pakistani Indian or Bengali that I could also sort of fit into so I'll go to into a mosque and then it would just be like I'll be like the only black guy there for example so um it, it created a sort of cultural identity crisis at college that I had to fix. And one of the ways that I fixed it was through exploring religion. So that's the only time really in my life that I started looking at religion. Um, and so actually... You, and I looked at different religions for that matter ah, before. So saying, hang on a second, I'm Muslim, I should be looking to so Islam. So part of your spiritual journey into really embracing Islam and, you know, becoming an imam was... Born again. <laughs> to use that phrase, born again, again. Muslim, uh, was actually through searching for 
identity. Yeah, searching for um, for meaning and searching for something that, that resolved. So the the there's something called um, you know identity crisis theory, mm. taken from the the research of someone called um, Victor Turner, who looked at someone interested in some of the African tribes, uh. specifically the Ndembo tribe, um, and he had this theory that whenever there's a crisis, to resolve it, there's an element of limbo, liminality, he called it, and then for the tribe to resolve that you know, they would have to kind of, you know, uh, come together. And that coming together creates a sort of unity. So, long story short, um, an identity crisis requires, you know, resolution. So, individuals go about it in very different ways, you know, uh, and I was no different from that. But I chose a sort of um, uh, a narrative that would make sense to me in, in a sense of my belonging. Right. You know, and to be very specific, my skin colour and my... Um, you know, my being African and my being black and, mm. you know, um, so the narratives that were out there, you know, um, one of the things that appealed to me was the narrative of, hang on, you know, this is something that, you know, um, that you were created like this and, and so it makes sense for you to embrace it and, and to see the beauty in it. So that's how some of these religious narratives started to, to appeal to me. Um, and I looked at the Islamic religious narrative um, in particular, and that sort of made sense to me because, you know, you find a lot of, and this took me a long time, by the way, mm. um, this this journey of resolving mm. this crisis, mm. well into even when I started my my bachelor's in Islamic theology degree, mm. in the very first year, again being sort of hit by um, uh, multiple crises in the sense of, you know, hang on a sec. I suppose we're, I, I thought we're supposed to be all brothers here, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm here in a prophetic city, you know, this, 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 this is like the birthplace of Islam, this mm-hmm. is the cradle of the faith. Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't we all together mm-hmm. as brothers, you know? There's no superiority of a black over a white or of an Arab. So there was except no feeling by, of a Numa, eh? I'm not, uh, not, to, not to dismiss it, there mm-hmm. was no feeling, mm-hmm. but there were moments, mm-hmm. key moments where, you know, it caused you to really question yourself, like, hang on a sec, like, why am I being treated like this? Um, so these narratives, you know, they invited me to look further into the tradition, but also to look even beyond the tradition and look at, for example, uh, narratives of colonialism, mm-hmm. because I found that colonialism sort of um, uh, was one of the key issues and factors which, you know, shape race relations, you know, especially in our contemporary modern times. Did you, did you fr- I'm interested to know how your friends reacted to you when you were doing this kind of soul searching. Mm-hmm. Was it a sort of, were their friends saying, you know, what are you doing, kind of locked in your room, you know, studying or searching? Were there kind of... I wasn't interesting. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering if there were sort of interesting debates going on between your friends thinking yeah. uh, about this identity search that you're going through. I don't know, when you watch no. certain films, you just see the characters in the crisis <laughs> being locked in a room and, you know, going through, uh, you know, being angry at the world. And, uh, when, I look back at my, like when I look at my story, I don't know. The thing is, I mean, human, human narratives are so interesting because we pick and choose what we remember and, and mm-hmm. we, you know, try to bring it all together. But um, I do remember having interesting conversations, such as, for example, one of my my close relatives in London telling me, "Hang on a sec, you." He said to me, 
are you even a Muslim anymore? Um, because before turning into Islam, I was looking at other, you know, uh, uh-huh. other identities. Right. And I questioned him, like, you know, how can you believe in a God that you can't really see or feel? Okay. And he was like, obviously, he wasn't quite equipped with the tools mm-hmm. to, to sort of help me to, you know, investigate. So his in- immediate reaction was to be defensive and say, hang on, if you're going to pose these questions, then you have to question your own faith as being a Muslim. So that's one of the questions that I dealt with very early on. Um, I also remember um, some of my school or some of my college teachers writing letters to my parents saying they were very worried about me because I had become all of a sudden very, you know, um, you know, I had isolated myself and I was being very quiet. I started, I changed the way I dressed. So I went to college with like a full uh, Arabian garb. Wow. Um, and... You know, that, that caused a lot of worry for some of my teachers. Um, and I remember my mom and my dad being quite worried, like, oh, is he being an extremist? So, yeah, it was, it was you know, it was a journey full of ups and downs. And um, I think the stage where I, I resolved it was, you know, towards um, the middle of my bachelor's degree um, in Saudi Arabia, city of Medina. Yeah. What happened there? Was there a, a moment that... Yeah, as I said, I started researching. So not only looking at the Islamic tradition, but looking at other things like racism, colorism. Uh-huh. So within even racism, there's colorism where individuals of the same race group discriminate against each other on the grounds of the, their skin tone. And again, it, it's a product of colonialism because the colonial masters was distinguish between the, the darker slaves and the, the lighter skinned slaves. What do you call the field Negro and the house Negro? Mm. And... I could see elements of these kind of higher these these hierarchies of racism kind of in place in, in let's say contemporary Saudi Arabia where they would distinguish between the American and a Bengali mm. on the grounds of this hierarchy. There was like a kind of hierarchy in it, almost like a kind of caste system. Mm. And then later on when I fast forward to my PhD research in interviewing a Bangladeshi woman um, in London and she telling me that in, in her culture there are also sh- there are names for different shades of skin for women, and the lower down the the, the, the strata you were, you know I think she called it like something like khala, which means black, mm-hmm. you know um, the less desirable you were as a mate, you know, so so yeah I mean this study helped me to resolve because then I started to understand because before that I was confused I'm like, I'm like what's happening like I couldn't choose I mean I'm not the one who chose this skin color I'm not the one who you know, let's say, said, I'm going to be like this. Mm-hmm. But then why am I subject to, to all of these kind of obstacles and barriers? So it began to make sense when I started doing more research. So I would spend hours in an internet cafe, um, just browsing articles. And I think that is what actually led me to an academic sort of route where, you know, so now I've finished a PhD looking at right-wing pop- populism mm-hmm. and, and politics and seeing how that is shaping Muslim identity. Because I found that whenever I was threatened by something, instead of hating it, or instead of like being afraid of it, or instead of you know um, allowing that thing to overcome me and, and make me feel uh, inferior, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought a better strategy would be to understand that thing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to understand racism, how it worked. I wanted to understand you know, colonialism. And so therefore, when I felt threatened by right-wing populism, I wanted to understand it. How, why is Europe leaning? Or why is it um, 
why is it why why is populism finding you know constituencies and votes within what used to be traditionally working class left left sort of leaning uh, constituencies why are they now all of a sudden you know being sympathetic to the right and what have you found from you uh, there's a lot of fear out there you know there's a lot of insecurity you know and some of it's even like insecurity on a gendered dimension where you have uh, males mm -hmm. white males in particular sort of feeling very anxious that you know um, their masculinity is almost being challenged and I don't know I invite you to tell me Ian as a as a as a, as a white <laughs> Scottish man, <laughs> um, because one of, one of the, the results that I found is that, you know, right-wing populism is, is, is one of the characteristics of it is that it is chauvinistic. Mm. They, they make this sort of, um, one of their priorities is to kind of protect the nation state. And one of the ways to protect the nation state is to, to protect who is born in the nation, i.e. the women. Mm. The, the kind of babies that they they bear with in their wombs are in in, 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 in essence the, the defense line. So there's a fear of the brown man coming in and taking that woman away. And, and, and there's that kind of, you know, and again, it also links into other narratives like the hijab, mm -hmm. where the hijab is seen as this sort of like defense, uh, you know, hindering the, the white western male from having access to seeing these women because that's, that's what they that's what they're used to and so for a woman to, to refuse that is all of a sudden seen as a kind of very uh, threatening thing well it's not interesting that, that some of these right-wing groups will um, almost pretend to be the party of the family of traditional, exactly. traditional British values that's right and they'll sell it in such a way that anything that looks remotely different is sort of un-British or goes against that. That's right. It's um, seen as a threat. And, and, and often they'll, they'll, they'll do it in such a way that people might support something that it looks like it's supporting British values. So, you know, tip that if you believe that you want to celebrate St George's Day or you want to celebrate this. But what they don't <coughs> see is the next bit that means to support that, that you have to reject this group. Mm -hmm. um, we, we can go all the way throughout history if you look at Nazi Germany and the, the way propaganda, the way that one group was sort of demonised, it's been done throughout history. That's right, and we and seem to be not learning from history, which is very alarming actually. Yeah. Um, coming back to, you know, dealing with all these heavy topics, coming back to moving from, from London to, to, to Scotland, being in Edinburgh, has, has there been a difference between living in Edinburgh from living in London uh, how you live your faith how you where your identity sits so, so I didn't live too long um, in London with practicing mm. Islam because I, I, I practiced Islam for a year mm. then I moved back to Gambia okay. for a gap year right. and, and when I was in Gambia I set up like this charity organization um, you know helping with the education of, of, mm. of youth and, uh, and then I received a scholarship to go and study in, in Saudi for about seven years um, so I didn't really get too much of a, a period of practicing Islam okay. in London. Mm. Um, uh, so I've, I've lived in other parts of the of, of let's say the world, mm. and then I came to Edinburgh in twenty thirteen to do the PhD. Um, mm. And during that, I was also offered the role at the Central Mosque as an Imam. Mm. So when I compare living Islam in Edinburgh to living Islam in other parts of the world where I've lived in, 
I think Edinburgh is, is distinguished by a number of factors, such as, for example, number one, mm-hmm. Edinburgh doesn't have an element of um, social or social economic, social cultural enclavization, which mm-hmm. is when I first came, I said, okay, where's the Muslim area, guys? Tell me. And they looked at me like, there's no Muslim area here. The Muslims are scattered. You know, uh, you find Muslims in Leith, you find Muslims in Western Hills, you mm-hmm. find them in, you know, Nidri, you find them in the city centre here. And that helps a lot in the integration of Muslims. I was going to ask that question. Yeah. It's interesting because having, yeah. having myself studied in, in Leicester, yeah. uh, and previously worked in Glasgow, even in Glasgow there are pockets, uh, Pollock Shields, other areas. So Glasgow is different to Edinburgh in yes. front. Yeah, Glasgow yeah. does have, you know, uh, Muslim segregated areas like Pollock Shields, like um, Golven and, uh, and the like. So I was interested to, to ask that question, whether you think yeah. that does improve integration Absolutely. That's, that's, groups are scattered here. That's what the research shows, yeah. So, very recent published research, like the likes of Stefano Donino, his book, um, mm. Muslims in Scotland, mm. published just, a, you know, two or three years mm. ago, mm. showing that Edinburgh being a, uh, a more sort of cosmopolitan and a more diversified city, you know, has really helped the integration of, of Muslims. Um, and my own research, um, when I compare Muslim integration in Scotland in particular, to that in England and to that in Sweden and Denmark, I find that this factor of, you know, the the fact that the there's a small community scattered across really helps the integration of us, and really helps the indigenous peoples to get to know their neighbours, as opposed to having a Muslim area where you have a sort of white flight where the indigenes kind of flee, you know, but that's what happened in Scandinavia in places like Malmo and Copenhagen. Uh, Mount especially a very interesting case where Muslims go in, the Swedish people leave. Yeah, right now. Yeah. It's very depressing. I mean, we, we could spend a long time going into this. I mean, there are there will be other factors, of course, in, in that in, you kind of hinted on that earlier experience in London in, in, in the diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, having myself being in uh, areas like Leicester where there are also large Somalian populations, yeah, uh, great diversity within Islam, but in Scotland and, and you touched on it earlier, I guess a lot of our uh, Muslim population has South Asian yep. origins. Yep. Uh, and I wonder if that also is easier towards integration. Or, and many of these came from, I think, middle class families, I believe, mm. who. Absolutely, yeah. Migration. Yeah, so. And religion, and back to something you said earlier <laughs> as well, that perhaps in the, for many of these groups in, in the 60s and other times where they came here, yeah. religion was less of an issue because they came. Mm-hmm. more from areas so mm-hmm. people would come from Punjab and there would be would be mm-hmm. Sikhs and Muslims coming together so living side by side that's right so the culture was almost connecting them yeah I mean the religion factor was not was not key as you mentioned until let's say towards the second and third generation and the research shows that that tends to be something that the second and third generation pick up on mm-hmm. why because they encounter a very different set of challenges the first generation are more concerned about survival. Like, we're here, we need to survive. Mm-hmm. And the way to survive is to, to get a job or be self-employed and, and work. The second generation are essentially Scots. You see, there's very much Scottish people. Um, they don't have the what they call the myth of return that the first generation has. Because the first generation always think, okay, I'm here to make some money, mm-hmm. do this, then I'm going home. But the children who are born here, like, they don't know anywhere, any other home but here. So now when they're faced with obstacles like Islamophobia, like discrimination, 
what that tends to make them do is to start to explore religion. Say, hang on, you're discriminating me on the grounds of my faith, and I want to explore that faith, and I'm going to embrace it, and I can relate to that. You know, I'm not. I would be considered a 1.5 generation because I was not born here, but I came here at a quite young age where I could, I was able to shape a sort of identity, and. Um, so tell, tell us about yourself now. At the beginning, I, I thought, do I introduce you uh, as the mom or do I introduce you as the, the, the head of the other tree? How, how you yeah. tell us a lot about, about where you are now? And I'll, prefer to be, I'll prefer to be, I mean, I'm always aware of, of titles, you know, I don't want to get a big yeah, head. Yeah, of course. I've been told I already have a big head enough, you know, my wife <laughs> always tells me that. Um, so, yeah, but I will identify as the director of Olive Tree or the founder of Olive right. Tree. Okay. And not an Imam, because actually Imam has a, it's, it's a, very, it's a huge title in Islam. Mm. Um, we tend to use these titles very, you know, quite, almost just in a very relaxed, relaxed term. But the, ti- the title Imam is, is, is huge in Islam. It's essentially a leader who is changing a sort of um, a culture and, and, and is reviving the faith in, in a way. And it's a, it's a prominent authority. I'm not that. Although uh, the Olive Tree is equivalent to a madrasa. So the Olive Tree has a madrasa within it, yeah. Um, so and I used to be an imam of a mosque. <laughs> yes. But note, this, this imamship is restricted to a mosque where you right. lead prayers. Okay. As to be an imam in an unrestricted sense, then, you know, that's like a huge title. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Let's move on and look at uh, talking about a couple of the uh, <coughs> contemporary issues um, that I'd quite mm-hmm. like to get you, your views are right. Yeah. Um, the first is around a recent court ruling that mm. Islamic marriages uh, are invalid in the UK. Mm. This relates to the case of Nasreen Akhtar and Mohammed Shabazz Khan. Yeah. Um, and many people, there's a, there's a fear here uh, for, for women's rights, mm-hmm. actually, because if you're locked out of the civil system mm-hmm. uh, and you then get you at the mercy of the, 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 the Sharia courts, um, how. What, what is your view around this? Uh, should Islamic marriages uh, be fully recognised under British law? Mm-hmm. What's the solution here, do you think? Yeah, it's a very interesting case. And I'm actually I'm providing some expert witness um, you know, uh, services to some of the Scottish councils because they're dealing with similar issues. Um, and for me, I've, I've had to explain to them the objectives of the Islamic legal system and, and, and how it operates in that there's more of an emphasis of the relationship between the individual or individuals with God as there is to, let's say, um, you know, matters of state and governance and, legis- and, and administration, etc. So, for example, a marriage, a nikah in Islam is a sort of a binding contract between you and the spouse um, and God to, to kind of uphold this relationship. So for that reason, I mean, I would have, I would incline towards making it recognised as part and parcel of the, you know, the, the secular and, and state laws, just for the sake of there not being parallel legal systems, and also for it to, as you say, to protect individuals from being locked out of the of the system. Because sadly, you will find some people who may, um, you know, take advantage of this and and you know abuse it in in the wrong way. And that is what gives Islam and Muslims uh, a bad name. Do you think there's a, a reluctance to give uh, Islamic marriage that status? Do you think there's a, a hidden Islamophobia behind it? Is there hidden reasons? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 
it's a complex thing to say um, because I think the Jewish community, mm. their marriages are essentially recognized as, as um, registered civil marriages. And um, I would have liked to have seen the Muslim community to have, you know, um, organized themselves in such a way where they can achieve a similar sort of status. But then again, uh, Judo-Christian sort of um, alliance has always been there. It's, oh, it's been a part of the backbone of, um, you know, secular Europe, secular Western Europe. And sadly, Islam has tended to be seen as always the other. Okay. Uh, so, although we can't entirely rule it out of the possibility, um, I also don't like the, you know, the sort of almost like the victim narrative of course. we are being... I think we need to mobilize ourselves much better and so more efficiently. So you think that perhaps there needs to be more of a coming together from Muslim organizations, organizations. Schools, schools of Islam? Definitely, because at the moment, let's say, okay, the Scottish government, mm -hmm. uh, who are they going to approach as um, a Muslim authority in Scotland here? I've heard it, you know, there are would significant they, challenges. Um, mm -hmm. in, would the Muslim Council of Scotland tend to be one organization? They, they, of course, they are one of the potential organizations, but then again, are they representative? Okay. I mean, and when you when you compare them with the Muslim Council of England, for example, mm. um, you find that you know their authority has been has been significantly challenged by by other mm -hmm. you know organizations um, to the point where you know um, the the previous Labour government distanced themselves from um, you know the Muslim Council of, uh, of the UK, so. So yeah, um, I think a lot of work needs to be done mm -hmm. um, to, mm -hmm. to sort of resolve these, these these kind of community affairs within the Muslim community. And I'm aware of, of these sort of community divides, the politics, and it is unfortunate, uh, but we do need leaderships to sort of uh, find a middle ground. It's very difficult when you have so many you know different branches and uh, uh, people have different views. Uh, coming from a church in Scotland background, I know how broad the church is. Uh, I mean, a very similar way from Islamic perspective. You have many different views and people mm -hmm. who are aligned to many different schools. So, uh, it's just creating a platform to bring these people together that everybody's view is given a, an airing, and that's right. People can find a solution. It is very difficult. It's hugely challenging, but it, it's 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 a challenge worth you know uh, um, embracing. Well, let's hope that uh, a solution is found to that. Mm -hmm. uh, another big news story that's come this week. Um, it's been the, the tragic suicide of uh, Caroline Flack. Now, I'm not sure you were ever a big watcher of Love Island <laughs> on TV. Uh, I've heard about it. Yeah, but it, 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 it does raise questions around mental health and an alarming rise in suicide uh, and also the, uh, the dangers of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and you often you reflect on this is that when we were growing up, mm -hmm. um, so older than you, but there wasn't that same maybe same pressure or self-image pressure. There would be some magazines, I guess, yeah. that some people would look to, mm -hmm. but there wouldn't be that. You know, once when once you left, you know, once you were home, you 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 were your door was closed. You were away from any yeah. potential, you know, people attacking you or your image. But now. I guess it's twenty four seven. People are exposed to social media. Yeah. People are constantly putting images up. People are talking about people that. Where is it? You know, where is the safe space that people can go? And, um, how how do we? What can we do to protect our own 
mental health? I mean, why, you know, why are people feeling more under strain? Yeah. What can what what can we do? I mean, you coming from a, from an organisation like Olive Tree, um, I guess you'll have young students who absolutely who will come to your schools. I mean, I don't know if you ever talk to them about social media no. or or body image or any of these issues or how 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 do they think about their own mental health and what do you see as your responsibility? I guess as a as a mm-hmm. as a as a religious leader in that area. Yeah, I mean, again, you just don't like the term religious leader. But I don't like the term religious leader. I'm trying to think of another term. What do we call it? Religious know? leader. Yeah. I'm so religious. You could have described yourself I'm so as religious, earlier. Ian, you know, I mean, well, we're going to talk about Love as Island. As a community leader. We're religious and we're going to talk about Love Island very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, I mean, uh, of course, yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole body image thing. It's interesting, but one of the conversations that we've had, so we, we have group discussions with our students and one of the things that came up was the thing about body image where some of the students felt that you know they were expected to conform to conform to certain you know uh, expectations and some of them felt very especially the females uh, mm-hmm. you know felt very sort of unconscious of, of what they would see as defects or you know imperfections etc and i think it it is it is the issue of our time really yeah. uh, mental health and well-being um, because we've advanced so much as a, as a, as a society, um, materially and you know, technologically, but it's leaving a vacuum, and that vacuum is a vacuum of our, of our mental health, our spiritual health and well-being. And I do think this is a gap where religious organisations and faith-based organisations, and obviously not to exclude some of the non-faith, like the humanists, etc., um, this is where they have a, a, an opportunity to tap into and to provide services. And, you know, I really subscribe to the idea that we're supposed to healthily compete in providing these services to, to the society. And this, this is how we maintain our relevance. So what do we as a Muslim organization have to offer? We have to offer things like, you know, uh, the Islamic toolkit to, to kind of help combat, you know, um, perceptions of not being good enough. You know, having to, to, to kind of uh, conform to a particular, you know, lifestyle. And one of the things that is really essential for it is the creation of these safe spaces, Ian. It's really important to, to get the message out there that, look, if you, if you want to talk, you know, we're here. And, and, and we're not going to judge you. We're not going to judge you that, let's say, you, you identify to yourself with a particular, let's say, um, you know, sexual orientation. Just, just give you an example. Or the fact that, you know... Um, you may have had certain relationships, you know, we're not, that's not our job here. Our job is not to judge. Our job, our job is to provide you with knowledge and information so that you can make informed decisions about your life. So I think it's huge. And we had um, a, a visitor from uh, one of the organizations, I think they're called uh, Light Up Education. It's, uh, it's just, uh, they're based at somewhere, one of the Lothians. And when I asked them, what are, what's the major issue that you're faced with in dealing with the youth? They say the same, social media, mental health and well-being. So it's huge. I don't have the answers, but I think that the creation of safe havens and sanctuaries uh, is key. That's very good. On a a kind of later note, um, we were talking a little bit about body image. Um, Also with... Hey, we're very smooth, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) I see you're a pro at this. (laughs) Also, you have an interest in, in, in fashion. Um, and uh, I just want to just explore that briefly with you. Um, 
also some people may have the idea of uh, that being a, a strong person of faith that somehow there's a contradiction between materialism and fashion. <laughs> is there? Is there? Well, oh, I put that to you. Is, is there? And how do how do they go together? Do do, do people come to Madras and say, you know, the director is looking rather sharp, uh, mm. or does this fit in with Islamic teaching? Uh, well, yeah. Should you go back to what you said when you started in London? Yeah. <laughs> you, should be, you should be coming dressed in a this stereotypical Islamic garment. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that for every occasion there's a dress and attire for it. Right. So there's an occasion for dressing traditionally, and I do choose those occasions. Uh, uh, and there's an occasion to be, you know, executive or to be casual, right. uh, etc. Uh, but then again, when I do look at the Eiffel pictures where you're dealing with faith leaders, I I see them all sharply dressed. So, yes. um, I, I, and I think for me personally, I, I don't see any contradiction between um, a person being conscious of how they look mm. and uh, a faith that they, they subscribe to. Because at the end of the day, um, we have to deal with the reality that, you know, um, we are perceived by how we present ourselves, you know. So if you have something to present, you know, I think that, you know, presented in, in the best possible way. Where does this love yeah. of fashion come from? Is this, is this something that you... I Whoa, mean, I, I wouldn't say I love of fashion. <laughs> I see often <laughs> tagging that, is it to black... Black, black uh, African Muslim. Black African Muslim. Yeah. 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 I'm kind of, I don't know if right or wrong, but it almost feels like a kind of brand that, that, that you have. It's yeah, you're unveiling my plans here, Ian. Um, it, is, it is a brand that I'm, I'm, I'm developing and I'm building. Um, but also, it, it is underpinned by research as well. So right. um, I'm, I'm interested in researching, let's say, um, early African um, you know, Muslim settlements, especially in the UK here, you know, the West Africans who came from Nigerians. When I look at some of the photos in the archives, I see they were very sharply dressed, you know, uh, with hats and with, you know, uh, with, with blazers, you know, with shoes. And one of the, one of the books that I've, I've read cited the fact that this image has had, had to change with the youth almost as a kind of rebellion and now the youth are wearing sort of like more where you know sometimes they, they, they drag their trousers so far down that you begin to see some parts of their underwear etc and and it, it, the author said this was against you know the, the sort of uh, fashion norms that the right. early generation of blacks had so um, I'm beginning to develop the research and um, but besides it it has really kind of um, inspired me to, to, to look at how I present myself to the mm. world, mm. you know, um, and I have to give credit where it's due. I'm, I've, I've, let's say, followed a couple of um, what you would say would be, um, you know, actually younger Muslims, you know, out there, you know, who are black and African, and yet they are, you know, really sharp looking. And uh, I read some of their blog posts and one of them, you know, uh, quoted being inspired by Malcolm X. But also by Oscar uh, Oscar Wilde as well, saying a man can can never be uh, overdressed and overeducated, and um, saying how, you know, um, they say being well dressed basically basically has a twofold you know effect, the way that the world perceives you, but also how you feel on the inside, and I believe that when you see good in people, you know, um, instead of hating them and, and being envious, you know, take take a leaf from their book. And, mm. I'm like, I don't know, I need to look at this. I just, it's just been interesting to me because it's been quite <laughs> striking to me and ties into our conversations today about uh, an, an identity and really yeah. uh, being comfortable in your shoes and embracing Absolutely. different aspects of your identity. And 
it's really striking to me sometimes when I see the, the fashion. Yeah. Um, and I see some of the traditional African clothes being mixed. Yeah. Uh, with what you may see more as Western clothes, but when you've described to me Malcolm X, I'm yeah. Malcolm X influence, now that yeah. comes to me. Yeah. But the way yeah. that I've seen you coming in today with the, 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 the kind of stylish hats that uh, Malcolm yeah. X also was quite known for. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, in a sense, uh, it, it, it coming together a fusion of these cultures and these identities. and. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting to me to see where this uh, where this brand goes and, and yeah. where this goes with you because I Absolutely. think I've won a kilt as well, so the Scottishness is there too. The Scottishness <laughs> is in there too, but it, 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 the tartan, you know. I think what it really positively speaks to me is is about um, speaking out to to young, you know, young uh, people, young yeah. people, but but also young who have an African heritage to Absolutely. see to see embrace that. Um, Absolutely, be a part of yeah, your British African identity that's to, right. to go together, and he's he's a, he's a place for you. And that's one of the messages I want to like, say: rocket. You know, you're you're black, you're African, you're Muslim. You know, these should not be obstacles for you. You know, instead of seeing them as obstacles, embrace them and 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 make them elevate you and, and, and empower you. So so I truly believe in that. You know, and and I'm I'm loving the journey so far, and I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what what is where it's going to lead to. Well, we, we look forward to, to, <laughs> to, to finding out where that, that journey goes. Sure. Uh, it's been really fascinating uh, talking to you today. There's so many areas uh, that we could have spent a lot more time uh, going into. Um, I hope you found that interesting. Yeah, it was, it was a good conversation. Thank conversation you. And uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll come back another time and, and, and we'll find out more where... Absolutely. Where the African and Muslim uh, logo has, uh, brand has gone. And, sure, and sure. Where the olive tree has uh, developed to. Uh, for now, uh, Absolutely. thank you for coming. Thank you. I also know you see you have a hat too, so... Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure, but this, uh, this hat here speaks, no, no, speaks no. about anything. It's uh, good, man. Keep it up, bro. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to learn from you. <laughs> thank you. And for this next segment, I'd like to take a question, uh, and today's question comes from John Sproul, who's a fourth-year student at uh, Edinburgh University doing theology. So um, I was wanting to ask, with the current political climate between Iran and America, is there fears between you know yourself and other Muslims of increased Islamophobia? Because I know that Western media, at least in the past, has used these sort of events as excuses to sort of spread vehement bigotry, really? I think that fear, certainly, we, we, we can't be complacent about it. I think there is that risk, and that, that's what the research is showing. That you know, When you see, let's say, Police Scotland, you know, posting statistics showing how, you know, post-Brexit, uh, the, the, the yes vote, you know, there was a surge in, in hate crime, uh, especially towards members of, let's say, the Muslim community and other, you know, uh, minority ethnic communities. And I think, sadly, um, leaders, and I, you know, I don't like mentioning leaders by their names or, you know, let's say, by their political affiliations. So I'll just keep it generally speaking that some of these um, you know, influential world leaders, um, I think they have a lot to answer for in that they are playing into this narrative because it, it, it wins them votes, as we've seen, across both sides of the Atlantic, you know, America, um, the, the UK, but also in other parts of the world, Brazil, India. And um, since we are in a sort of religious sort of theme, 
um, I would like to draw upon one of the, the narratives that sort of exists in the Islamic framework that is, although it's not a, a very strong tradition, but it does exist, that says that basically um, our, our leaders reflect how we are as communities. So if our communities have voted for these leaders, then that's an indication that not everything is okay. Mm. Um, and my, I prefer to be a, a pragmatic and a, and a realist. And I would say, as long as these leaders are being voted into power, then we need to do a lot of grassroots work uh, at a grassroots local community level, trying to bring people together and trying to not allow ourselves to be divided, especially on the grounds of religion and faith. I don't know if that answers the question. No, it does. <laughs> um, I know myself that increasingly, I always thought when I was growing up, oh, these scary countries like Russia were like the countries we need to be afraid of. But now mm. as I've grown up, I've realised that the threat's much closer to home. And like in my own neighbourhood, seeing people happily spread this sort of hatred, it really has, you know, lit a fire underneath me and other people like me to... Uh, really do some more outreach and interfaith work and to like try mm. and break down these stereotypes because I know that they're right prevalent. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I salute that. Yeah. Thanks so much for that. Mm -hmm.